0: few things I uh, know about renovation. Uh, it's no fun. Can I get a witness? Right, like every builder in the room knows that renovation can be no fun. Every person who ever hired a builder knows that renovation can be no fun. It's just not that much fun. And everyone who never hired a builder said, renovation is really not that much fun. Did you ever try to fix something yourself? Like those of you who like me, it's not like your primary area of gifting. It's a disaster. It's so bad. Like I've had so many bad experiences that when like the slightest thing goes wrong, now I break out in hives. It just freaks me right out. Renovation is just not that much fun. I also know that it's expensive. Right? Do you know this? Have you experienced this? It always costs more than you'd expect. It always costs more than you planned. You ever had that happen? You're building and all of a sudden halfway through you're like whoa, this is going to cost way more than we expected. Renovation is also messy. We uh, were under extensive renovation in our house about a year ago and uh, although the renovation is now finished and beautifully so, um, the debris from that renovation is still lurking in the corners of my house. In fact, if you're at my house sometime this year, go into the living room, there's a china cabinet in the corner, open it and you will find the dust from that renovation still lingering. Now, we have tried to clean it out, but it just keeps coming back. And I want you to notice how lyrically that reflects your experience in life as you have tried to renovate it over the years. Do you not find that the debris of all your best efforts are still lurking in the nooks and crannies of your life? It's because renovation is messy. One thing I know for sure about renovation, there's going to be some work involved, um, usually more than you think. Welcome to... Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were with them, who were about them, aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem, introducing Ezra. Let me tell you a a few things about Ezra. Um, First off, it's a date most scholars agree um, that it was written. So the date that the book that we actually have was written, the original manuscripts, um, most scholars believe that the mid-400s BC is the earliest we can reliably say the book was written. So we think it was written mid-400s B.C., okay, the book of Ezra, which means it's a very old book. It's quite astonishing, in fact, that this book has endured through Judaism and Christianity to arrive on your lap today, almost 2,500 years later. So that's the date of the writing, we think somewhere in the mid-400s B.C. Uh, Ezra exists in two distinct sections. The first section contains chapters 1 through 6. The second section contains chapters 7 through 10. So the first section, chapters 1 through 6, covers the rise of Cyrus of Persia, who defeats the Babylonian Empire, conquers it, takes it over, and then issues the edict that we read about in Ezra chapter 1, where he says, All the Jewish exiles who had been living in Babylonia since Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem in 586 BC, all of you can go home. You're welcome. And then the second part of that first six-chapter sequence covers what happened, how they came up to Jerusalem. So it covers the events of this first very significant return from exile. That is section 1 of the book of Ezra. Section 2 covers chapters 7 through 10. And it is called by most scholars the Ezra Memoir. And you can think of it as basically a diary entry, where Ezra actually enters the scene, he takes the stage, and he tells you about the role he played in um, the events that are encoded in Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. Particularly, Ezra himself was a scribe. He was well-versed in the Jewish law. And so when he went up to Jerusalem, one of his big jobs was to help reorganize um, God's people in Jerusalem because, surprise, surprise, the moment they came home from Babylon to their homeland and began to reestablish the worship of the Lord in Jerusalem, surprise, surprise, they began to wander from the worship of The Lord, a story that uh, occurs in their history again and again, and importantly, a story that occurs and reoccurs in our lives as well. So the second half of the book of Ezra, and in fact, all the way up to Nehemiah chapter 13, is considered the Ezra memoir, where he kind of tells you, first person, the role that he played in restoring faithful worship In Jerusalem, The actual author of the book of Ezra is unknown, so we don't know who wrote it. Um, It's quite clear, obviously, that chapters 7 through 10, being the Ezra memoir, contain content that Ezra himself brought to the table. You'll see as we get there, it reads just like a diary. But still, scholarship does not know who actually wrote down the book that has been preserved from antiquity to today. We think the best guess we have is that the same author who wrote 1 and 2 Chronicles and the book of Nehemiah is the one who wrote the book of Ezra. So you'd say, great, who wrote the books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles and the book of Nehemiah? And scholarship would tell you, we don't know. Okay, so we're not sure who wrote the book. Now, just in case you're new to church and you're thinking, well, then why should I pay it any attention? May I submit that I think we could pay attention to this book because it has endured, through the story of Judaism and Christianity, 2,500 years to land in your lap today. For me... That's enough reason for me to take it seriously. Um, The big ideas. What are the big ideas in the book of Ezra? Um, There's three that really jump out to me. One, what does faithfulness look like? So as we explore the book, that's one of the big questions we'll be wrestling with. What does faithfulness look like? Um, Two other key themes in the book of Ezra are the theme of confession and petition. So confession being, I can't do this. I keep messing things up. Uh, And then petition being, please help me. So this is a theme that occurs in the lives and history of God's people. And I'm sure, I'm not going to ask you to give me a witness, but this occurs in your life as well. Confession, where you realize and say, I can't do this, I keep messing it up. And petition, whereby you come to the Lord and say, please help me. Uh, The theme that I like most that is embedded in the book of Ezra is this, um, the idea of learning how to persevere in hope while you're rebuilding. So if you have found yourself in a rebuilding phase in your life, uh, hopefully the book of Ezra will give you some hope to keep at it, even though there's uh, quite a lot of work involved. Now before I really get into preaching, I just want to say when we examine the idea of faithfulness, when we ask the question, what does faithfulness look like, we need to be very careful to lay a Christian perspective on that question. We must not answer the question of faithfulness from a Jewish perspective, because we are Jesus followers. We are not Old Testament Jews, and we are not looking to understand faithfulness from a Jewish perspective. In Judaism, um, the short answer to faithlessness is to simply work harder, to know the law, and to abide in it. But in Christianity, that is not how we attack the question of faithlessness and faithfulness. Here's a section from 2 Timothy chapter 2 that might help you kind of put some flesh on the idea of faithfulness from a Christian perspective. If we died with him, meaning Jesus, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, this is the most important part, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2, 11-13. That is a very healthy Christian perspective on faithfulness. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So, if you find yourself here over the next 10 weeks looking to rebuild the broken places in your life, I just want to say that I'm going to help you do this with Jesus as the key. I'm going to preach all of Ezra's lyrically interpreted practical tips on how to find renewal, restoration, and redemption in your life through Jesus as the lens and with Jesus as the focus and in humble submission to Jesus as the architect, the builder, and the maker as we seek to help you renovate your life. So without further ado, um, 25 things to keep in mind and listen for while you're setting out to renovate your life. If you're here for the first time, this is not the kind of church where I'll make a joke, read a passage once, then never refer to it again, but give you three pithy ideas that you can hopefully hang your hat on, remembering one of them because I've brought an illustration to provide a hook. Okay, this is not that kind of church. What I do here is preach through books of the Bible, one chapter at a time, and so I invite you to consider bringing a notepad or a tablet, or feel free to pull out your phone and take notes, because I hope that somewhere in these 25 points, because that's how many points there were in the text today, one of them or two of them or even three of them will sing to you. So, I want you listening for these 25 things as you seek to renovate your life. Why? Why? Why listening for these things? Because nothing happens until God speaks. So, listen. Point number one. Your uh, struggle is real, but one day it will be history. Where do I get this? I get this right out of verse one. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. This is history. This really happened. The kingdom of Persia is real. Cyrus was real. He really conquered the kingdom of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was real. He really sacked Jerusalem in 586 B.C. If you go to the archaeological dig that is the ancient city of Jerusalem today, you will find an ash layer that is uniformly set across the entirety of the ancient city of Jerusalem that carbon dates to, you guessed it, 586 B.C. And in that carbon layer, you will find, for example, Scythian arrowheads. And who were the Scythians? They were the shock troops in the Babylonian army. They were the frontline troops, and they were adept with their Scythian arrowheads. Bows and arrows, and so you find Sidian arrowheads buried in an ash layer that is uniformly consistent in the city of Jerusalem at 586 BC. You find other examples of Babylonian war paraphernalia surrounding the entirety of the city, and so 1 plus 1 tends to equal 2. You're like, the whole city burnt in 586 BC. What happened in 586 BC? Well, the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and sacked the city and burnt it to the ground. So we are dealing here with history in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. In 586, Nebuchadnezzar sacks the the city of Jerusalem and exiles its people. In 539 BC, Cyrus of Persia conquers Babylon, and then immediately upon that, in 538 BC, 48 years later, Cyrus says to the Jews, You can go home. So here's the point for you, 2,500 years later. The struggle is real. Okay, they were in exile for basically 50 years years. Think about that. Think about being in exile for 50 years. Hard for us to relate to. If you are new to Canada, maybe it's not so hard for you to relate to, but for sure your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents could relate to the idea of being exiled from their country as your mothers and fathers of two, three, or four generations ago left the mainland to come to the new world to try and build a better life. And you can bet that they felt Exiled. The struggle is real, but it will come to an end. So, as you seek to renovate your life, two points. One, be patient. Two, don't lose hope. Okay, because the struggle will come. To an end. Why? Because, point number two, the word of the Lord stands. It comes by a messenger and it will be fulfilled. We find this in verse 1, part B, that the word, hear it, of the Lord, by the mouth of Jeremiah, might be fulfilled. The word of the Lord stands. It comes by a messenger. How do we know? Well, let me read to you from Jeremiah chapter 25, beginning at verse 8. I hope this sends shivers down your spine. Uh, Just to set it up, by the way, Jeremiah prophesied these words 10 to 20 years at least before Nebuchadnezzar showed up in Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And that means he prophesied these words at least 60 to 70, which is why we get the 70 in the text, 60 to 70 years before the events recorded here in Ezra chapter 1 when the exiles were permitted to return. So, shivers down the spine, here we go. The the voice of Jeremiah... Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, he's speaking here to the Jews in Jerusalem, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for... Bom, bom, bom. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then, it turns... After 70 years are completed, so you're like, holy cow, can you imagine being the Jews and you hear this edict come from Cyrus? I wonder if some of the faithful ones were like, Counting the days. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. Holy smokes. So he's prophesying this before it takes place. How epic is this? Here's the point. When God speaks, you can trust it. But my question for you is this. Are you listening to the messengers that he's bringing into your life? Because the word of the Lord stands. It comes by a messenger. And it will be fulfilled. Are you listening? As you seek to renovate your life, you should be. We should be learning to trust God, and we should be learning to awaken awareness. How many of you know what a discipline that is? To actively, ongoingly, in the midst of the busyness of your Western life, awaken awareness to the point that it is so heightened that when God speaks, you not only hear Him, but you hear and obey. Remembering, point number three, That um, God has to step in for real change to start. We get this in verse 1, part B. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. I want you to note here that it is the Lord who stirs up the spirit of Cyrus. Nothing happens until God speaks. Cyrus was living, 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 living. I want you to realize this great king has no reason to even think about the God of the Jews. He has no reason to think about sending the Jews home. This would have not even occurred to him until somehow God spoke to him. It's not recorded how he spoke to him. Did he show up in a dream? Did he send him a messenger? We see all throughout the Bible God using all kinds of tools and instruments to speak to people when he wants to speak to them. But the point for us here is that God spoke to Cyrus... And that is when something changes in Cyrus's heart. Nothing changes until God steps in. So as you seek to renovate your life, I want to invite you to leverage your life towards dependence on his activity. Again, very difficult. If you think through the practicalities of what it might look like for you to actually leverage your life towards dependence on God's activity. But that's exactly what you need to do if you want to renovate your life. You need to place your hope upon the fact that, point number four, when God does step in, things do change. We see this outlined in verses 1 through 4, 1b through 4. What happens? Then the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. For the sake of time, I won't read the whole thing, I'll just tell you what happens. What does this edict say? All the Jews can go home. Wherever you live in my kingdom, you're now allowed to go home to your ancestral home in Jerusalem, in Judah. Also, all of my people who live around you, you have to help them. You have to give them money for the journey. What does this sound like? It sounds an awful lot like what? Exodus, exactly. When God caused his people to plunder the Egyptians. Remember what happened in the Exodus? The Egyptians were so happy to see the people of Israel go that they just loaded them down with gifts like, here, take my... Shirt! It's a beautiful echo of Exodus happening here. When God steps in, things change and they get to go home. Here's the teachable point for us. Life is hard, but sometimes things change. Hold on to that. Especially in the midst of a difficult moment. Yes, life is hard. We don't have to minimize the difficulty of life or pretend that somehow it's easy because Jesus is just shiny and happy all the time. We don't have to be like that. We can say, yes, life is hard, but sometimes things change. And if you find yourself this morning teetering on the edge of hopelessness as you work to renovate your life, remember that this is the business that God is in. He's in the restoration business. The Bible tells us very clearly that God does all things well. So if he does everything well, and he's actually working in the restoration business, this is very good news for you and me, because disaster will give way to new life. Why? Well, because of the immortal words of 1 Corinthians 15, 54, and 55, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? Where is thy victory, O grave? And did you know that 1 Corinthians 15 was actually borrowing from Isaiah 25, 8? Either way, the point is clear. Death will be swallowed up in victory because of what Jesus did on your behalf. When God the Son became flesh and went to the cross to suffer and die in your place for your sins, he really died, and in dying, he really paid the penalty for your sin and mine. Okay, The penalty for the sin that we ought to bear, which we never could, Jesus bore in our place. But because he was God the Son made flesh, he did not stay dead, but he rose again the third day. And when he did that, my friend, he conquered the power of Satan's sin, death, and hell forever. So your assurance rests on Jesus' victory. And I just love the fact that Jesus is the one who was at work in your salvation. Why do I love this? Because it means that even unlikely candidates like you, me, and King Cyrus are invited to respond. Right? This is what he does in verse 2. Cyrus responds. The word of the Lord comes to him. And then what does Cyrus do? He responds. Like me, did you find it amazing as you read this chapter in preparation for this morning that point number 5, Cyrus, an unbelieving king, knows who God really is? Let me show you in the text. The Lord stirred up his spirit. And then what does he say? Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven. Okay, you know what the Lord is in the original manuscript? Yahweh, the personal name of God. Cyrus is not a Jewish king. He doesn't know that it's forbidden to pronounce the personal name of God. So he's like, Yahweh showed up and told me I need to send you people home. So go home. It's amazing that an unbelieving king knows who God really is. Point number six, it's amazing that this unbelieving king acknowledges God as the source of all his success. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. How, how epic is this? How epic must have been Cyrus' encounter with Yahweh, that he says, you know what, I thought it was me and my armies, but really all of my success is because of Yahweh. He acknowledges Yahweh as the source of his success. And point number seven, it is absolutely amazing to me that he sees God as the commander and himself as the obedient subject. And he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So, um, as you seek to renovate your life, my suggestion to you is this. Don't let yourself get outdone by a pagan king who's been dead for 2,500 years. (laughs) Amen? Amen? You know, don't let that dead king outwork you. Instead, remember the lessons of verses 2 through 4 and walk out the teachings of points 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. They are as follows. God is always basically about building home. Okay, so as you seek to renovate, know that that's the work he's up to. He's basically always about the same thing. He's seeking to build home. We see this in the Eden story, don't we? He makes a home for the creatures and for Adam and Eve. We see this in the story of the people of Israel, don't we? He calls them as a nation to himself and sets his presence in the midst of them so that it will be a home. Well, I'm getting the Holy Ghost. It'll be a home for him and for his people. We see this in his establishing of the city of Jerusalem as the capital of his people, a place for him woo, to call home. We see this in you, and we see this in me, and one day we will see this in the new heavens and the new earth. Friends, he's always about building home. Remember that eventually Emmanuel is going to have to step in. Did you find Emmanuel sneaking there in the text? May his God be with him. I've taught you what this means. God with us. Emmanuel. El, may his God be with him. Eventually, Emmanuel has to sneak in, and Jesus has to show up, and he is the crucial factor. I'm waiting for Jesus. I encourage you to wait for Jesus to show up. And look, even when redemption comes your way, let me remind you that it's not going to be easy. Why? Because first, you're going to have to leave Babylon, hike for three or four or five or six months through a rock desert to Jerusalem, and then when you finally arrive at Jerusalem and you see Mount Zion up in the distance, you're going to have to climb. And once you climb home, you're going to have to build. So don't get it twisted that like as Jesus saves you and redeems you, your life's going to be all hunky-dory and peachy keen and easy all the time because first you have to climb and then you've got to build. And look, while you're at it doing all that work, remember that God really isn't in Jerusalem anymore. God lives in you, which is ultimately why you're a survivor and can and will survive anything because the God of the universe... has taken up residence in you, which is ultimately why I'm a survivor. Yes, you'll hear that later on today. No matter where you are. Do you notice that Cyrus says, wherever you're living wherever you're from. Friends, no matter where you are or where you are from, this message of hope is for you because like the echoes of Exodus we see in verse 6, God is basically always telling the same story. What is the story that God is always basically saying? He is always basically saying to you and to me, you are moving from captivity to freedom. Hear it as if it's from God himself this morning. I am moving you from captivity to freedom. So, point number 15, remember who You are. And point number 16, even if you're broken, stand up. Did you notice what the leaders of God's people did? The heads of the houses of Judah and Benjamin, they stood up. Even if you're broken, stand up. I mean, that could preach good, you know. Like, if I wasn't preaching with a limiter this morning, I could preach that pretty good. I could say, even if you're broken, stand up. Because you know what? I've been broken. And sometimes I forgot to stand up. Even if you're broken, stand up. Oh, it's amazing. And allow yourself to be stirred by the Spirit of God. That's point number 17 and point number 18. You know what you should do with your life? You should go home. That's what you should do. You should should go home. Let me read to you um, verse 5. And all who were about them, sorry, then rose up. There it is. They got up. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, Everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord that was in Jerusalem, they did it. They stood up. So, my friend, as you stand up and go home, remember the big idea from the story of God and his people that rings throughout almost every story in almost all of the Bible. And that is this, that God meets you along the way. Time does not for permit for me to tell you the story of Abraham and of Sarah, to tell you the story of Gideon and of Ruth. But someday I'll get to preach to you those passages, and some of them I already have. And you know what happened in those stories, right? God met them Along the way. And my friends, you are God's people just like they were God's people, and He will meet you along the way. So as you renovate, I want to invite you to start expecting good things to happen, like what happens in verses 6 through 11. Did you notice that when we read it through the first time? Everybody does what Cyrus says. They give them all the money they need to go home. And not just that, but King Cyrus himself gets in on the act, picking it up in verse 7. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And then we count them all up. I won't do it again, but all 5,400 of these articles that were restored to God's people did Sheshbazar bring up, that's the prince of Judah, bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. And so, worship team, you can join me on stage as we're about to celebrate this in just a minute. As you renovate, my friends, start expecting good things to happen, like what happens in points 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25? Point number 19. Listen, your life is going from cursing to blessing, just like Israel's Babylonian captors became their primary providers. Point number 20. And this turnaround that you're caught up in is so great that just like um, with the temple wares, you're even getting your dishes back. That's my favorite point in this whole sermon. I can make a T-shirt. I'm even getting, I'm, I'm getting the dishes back. This is how much God loves you. You're even getting, I could say, I could say, Woo! if I wasn't being like restrained. I could say, Woo! it doesn't work quite as good. I could say, Woo! right? Because I'm getting the dish. Woo! we're getting the dishes back in point 21. If we take verse eight, literally someday echoing, of course, the beautiful prophecy from Isaiah 49, those in power will become your cup bearers because King Cyrus brought out the cups. How beautiful is that? That (laughs) those in power will one day be your cupbearers in point 22. Nothing is going to be left unaccounted for because ultimately it's not Mithridath, the treasurer, who's keeping score but God himself as beautifully pictured in Revelation chapter 20's great white throne judgment with its books and its lists. He is keeping score. So, point 23, like the Prince of Judah, remember who you truly are. A daughter or son of the King of Kings, point 24, so you can count on everything being restored, like in verses 9 through 11. So, finally, point number 25, we made it on time. Get ready to work, because I won't be surprised if, like the Babylonian exiles, you're going to have to carry the fruits of your redemption home with you because one thing I know for sure about renovation, there's going to be some work involved.